millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanni Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster, and a writer but I'm also your chief investigator of images. So we have had a really exciting couple of weeks. Most excitingly, I have another hat that I wear, which is president of Gloucester History Festival. And it means so much to me because I love an underdog. And the thing about Gloucester is it's always been overshadowed by its more glamorous sibling, Cheltenham. And as a result... Despite the fact it has this incredible unbroken record of history from the Romans through the medieval period, the only place to have a coronation outside of Westminster Abbey for Henry III, despite all of that, it it always gets overshadowed and it needs regeneration, it needs passion in itself, it needs to understand that because of its history it should feel pride in what the city means. And that is what we're trying to do with Gloucester History Festival. It's the touch paper for a whole world of regeneration that will hopefully expand across the city of Gloucester and then outwards into the UK and who knows, further afield. For me, the most important thing about what I do is sharing. It's about getting the passion out to the people who want it, need it, and not necessarily those people who are privileged enough to get it automatically. I'm really proud to be offering all of the podcasts that have come out of the talks from Gloucester. We have had some incredible speakers this year. We've had Tony Robinson. We've had David Olshoga. We've had Anita Rani. We've had people talking on not just the old popular topics of World War II and the Tudors. We've had such extraordinary investigations into the past using the landscape of Gloucester with its rich history, but also just bringing things that the people may not have known about to light. So we had Shrabani Basu talking about Victoria and Abdul, which is going to be a huge film this year. But, But instantly it's this story that has gone unread in history because people didn't understand the language it was written in. They couldn't expose it. So that's what we want to do with Gloucester. We want to open up stories. We want to open up dialogues. We want to get voices that aren't usually heard onto a platform. So I'm very, very proud to be able to offer through the History Hit Network and through my podcast, The Art Detective, a sequence of podcasts that will go out week after week, in conjunction with my own Art Detective podcasts that will give you our live footage from the event and you will hear amazing names. You'll hear Alison Weir talking about the Tudors. You'll hear um, information about MI5. You'll hear about Anita Rani talking about partition. There are so many wonderful things we're going to share with you. So stay tuned. Hope you enjoy them. Thank you so much for being loyal to the Art Detective podcast. It means the world to me. Thanks, everybody. Hello, hello, up at the back. Everyone's here. Hello, hello. Oh, they're waving. (laughs) Yes, yesterday was quite the experience. I knew as soon as I heard the approaching medieval drums and bawdy crier that I was going to end up being humiliated in some way, shape or form. So having to clasp the, but- the leather buttocks was, was, was actually, I think I got off lightly. <laughs> but, um, thank you all so much for coming. And um, yeah, as you heard, this is a part of two talks, really, that I'll be giving on this, this subject for the Winston Trust as 
as this 900th anniversary of St Mary's and Slowcester approaches. It's a big, big event. And so I will be talking today quite broadly about this millennium of monasteries. But do come and see me again, because I think, as you can tell, you never get the same talk twice with me. It does get a bit, a bit changed around. So... Um, I did a series for the BBC called Britain's Millennium of Monasteries, which I thought was a great title. Um, and when it was first pitched, it was this idea that we were going to explore the, the world of monasticism. Um, but actually, as soon as we started to unpack it across three programmes, it became clear quite how complicated, complex and diverse this subject actually was. Um, I often throw words at my undergraduates. I'll say, you know, what does the word saint mean to you? Because I wrote a book about saints, which is available to buy over there at the end of the talk. Um, and I'll say, you know, and they'll come back with word, notions of piety and uh, self-deprivation. And then they say, you know, what does the word monk or nun mean to you? And they'll, they'll, again, they'll come back with the idea of prayer, taking oneself away from the world. And I think what they're really thinking of is, is cat file in a herb garden with a ginger cat. But when I tried to type into Google Images, cat file with a ginger cat, I couldn't find any images. So instead I have a two monks with a dog, um, also dressed as a monk, which I, I found quite interesting. Uh, this dog is apparently becoming a monk. Uh, this is a proper initiation. I, he's a very homey dog. But anyway, um, th this idea that, that we have of what monasticism means, what it means to take ourselves away and become a monk or a nun in, in the modern day, is very, very different to how, to how it would have been in the medieval period. And a lot of the qualities we might think of now that, that drive people towards monasticism, they weren't necessarily the drive behind people going into monastic orders in the medieval period. It's such a broad term, and what I want to explore with you in this talk today are some of the areas that monasticism covered. But we should be thinking about monasticism as an international corporation. Uh, it crossed countries, it crossed divides, all bound together by the language of Latin in the Western Church. And it covered everything from business, um, trade, industry, education, medicine. All of those areas came under the, 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 this title of monasticism. On top of that, we have this complicated relationship between what you could call sacred, spiritual matters, and secular, worldly matters. Now we tend to box them up in our minds, we separate the two out. And I always think, visually, you see this so clearly in England, with the Houses of Parliament on one side of the River Thames, and Lambeth Palace, the home of the Archbishop of Canterbury on the other, the idea that church and state are separated by a river. That was not the case in the medieval period. The two were intimately intertwined. And you have bishops who are knights in armour, you have nuns who are princesses. You don't see that clear divide at this point. So I wanted to start with that sense of, of quite how diverse and huge this topic is. Plus, we are talking a millennium. Now, I'm a medievalist, and I get laughed at by some of my colleagues who are, you know, they work on a particular area of 19th century art, and they will work their whole lives on one year. I work on a thousand years, <laughs> and that is a lot of history to cover. It's also a transformative period. Time moves amazingly fast, particularly as we approach the 13th and 14th century. There's such rapid change. Things like the, the Black Death, things like uh, the, the Crusades and the wars that are taking place, they are changing the complexion of society beyond recognition. So what I'll do in this talk as well is I'll look at the earlier medieval periods, 9th, 10th century, and then look at how radically it changes by the 13th, 14th century before finishing off with the dissolution. And I have some sad images of ruins to make you, you feel sorry for the lost monks. Um, but let's go back to the origins. Sorry to take the dog off the screen. It's lovely, but he has, he has to go. Um, this is an image of two of the Desert Fathers, Anthony and Paul. And 
Uh, the reason I've put this in is because I wanted to think about the origins of monasticism. Where does it come from? Why do people start to embrace this life? It starts from people like this in the 4th, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, the Desert Fathers, taking themselves out of cities and going into the desert to be away from worldly temptations. They felt that by cutting themselves off from human interaction from other people, they would be cutting themselves off from sin, from temptation, uh, from all the things that, that distracted them from concentrating on their spiritual well-being. And two of the most famous ones, Anthony and Paul, come together at one point. They live extraordinary lives, apparently, that, 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 until they're about 150. Yeah. Sure, they did. But they did, they are. They lived to 150. But in those 150 years, <laughs> they met up once. And at that meeting, you can see this raven. I write a whole section on ravens in my thesis. Because ravens have come to be quite negative, have a lot of negative associations. But in this particular story, the raven used to bring half a loaf of bread to St. Paul every day to keep him alive. And that was all he ate. And on the one day that the two men came together, the clever raven brought a full loaf of bread. Um, and this, this becomes a symbol of, of this idea of monastic brotherhood, that they would break the bread together. And in that, we have this poster of monasticism, the, the origins of where it comes from. But it evolves in such a haphazard way. So you have these little clusters of hermits, of, of nuns, of men, women of all different backgrounds, taking themselves off to different corners of the desert. And then they start to attract followers who all start to camp around them. And actually, it got really busy in the desert, so you couldn't move for hermits and monks and nuns, and so many of them. So this idea that they were all trying to get away, they ended up congregating. And from that was born the idea of a monastery where people came together to be alone. I came up with that line for the programme, I was really pleased with it. They came together to be alone. Um, and, and so it needed to be structured more clearly. Because what was happening was every community was developing their own way of doing things. They all had at their heart these sorts of cult leaders, if you like, that were all doing things their own way. And the church in Rome did not like that. That was not good. There was just far too much variety. Um, we are gonna, I'm going to talk a bit about how Benedict, the rule of St. Benedict came in and tried to introduce a bit more cohesion to it all. But first I want to discuss this variety because I find it really interesting how these different communities developed and how they developed a lot in relationship to their location, to their geographical surroundings. And the place I want to start with, have to really, is Skellig Michael, um, which I still to this day think that my experience on Skellig has got to be one of the highlights of, of all the filming I've ever done. It was just so remarkable to get there, so remarkable to be on that island. And what the director had so cleverly done was ban me from researching anything about Skellig. So I was, I was told that when I got there, my reactions had to be absolutely pure and unfiltered. I, did, I was not to know what I was going to see. And, and I have before told the story about how hard it was to get this up to this island. Believe me, it was incredibly hard. And once we made it on, there is this sheer ascent, these 600 paces, steps up this cliff. And, um, and then nestled in the side of the mountain, bashed by the elements for 1,200 years, are these monastic cells. And, um, and they are extraordinary. You can see why Star Wars used them as the, the location, because they're otherworldly. You just don't expect to see them. And the idea that they're over a thousand years old, and yet they're intact, perfect, and they still do what they were intended to do when they were first made, which is keep out the elements. I find that, I found it very, very moving being up there. And I find it particularly moving talking about the bones of people that were buried there, the sorts of trauma that their bodies went through in the course of, of living this gruelling life. They would have eaten whatever they could grab. They would catch seabirds, they would fish from the sheer rocks on the edge, but they would also, um, people would try and bring them resources. And it is a very dangerous crossing. 
and they were making these crossings in Kuraks, these canoe boats that were just bits of wood with animal hide around them. So for every boat that made it, imagine the ones that didn't. I found it just a very deeply moving place. And what I also found quite extraordinary was the physical representation of that coming together to be alone concept that you see here, because in each of these cells, there'd be one monk. And that was his space. And yet they are tucked up alongside one another as this cluster. So for me, that shows what a monastery is about. It is about these, these individuals who are all working together. Um, and then they have their communal buildings. So they have the church building, which everybody is using. But on the whole, they're spending most of their time alone. So I found Skellig important because what these Irish monks, these first, second generation of converts, these Irish, these people that were embracing Christianity, what they were doing was using their landscape to try and get to the heart of what the Desert Fathers were about. So if you're in Northern Africa, you can go into the desert. If you're in Ireland, no desert. But what, do you do, what you do have are islands, water. So you cross this treacherous water and you go to these isolated places. And, and I, found it, I found it moving particularly because it made me think about the deep motivation for these people making this choice with their lives, the idea that they would do this to themselves, put themselves through this pain, this trauma. Why are they doing it? And... You, when I was talking to, I had to interview a Benedictine monk for part of the show, the show, and I did ask him, why, why do you take this life, why do you do it? He says, in your own small way, going inside yourself so completely helps you to understand everything else around you, and it's only by constantly taking care of, of your own spiritual health that you can hope to help other people. I don't know. I'm still unsure about, about you know, why these, these people in the 800s were getting in boats and doing this to themselves. But it is a very moving place. Now, it's all very well that we have this ascetic tra tradition. The Irish monks in particular are big on that. Rome doesn't like it. Rome wants everybody to be working to the same program with monasticism. Stamp out some of the variety. And the real key comes in this text, the rule of St. Benedict. And it still forms the basis of Benedictine monasticism today. What you get in the rule of Benedict is a very clear set of instructions of what you do every day as a monk. You know what order your day is going to take. You know what the hours are going to be. You know the rhythm of your day. It's a strange rhythm. You know, you're having to get up in the middle of the night, um, get up incredibly early, but also even your spare time is organised. So if you're not praying, you have to till vegetable patch, you have to fix things, you have to teach, you have to heal. So it really clearly sets out what people are to be doing with their days. But it's also structured in a way, very, very interesting when I was researching about this, when you read the rule of St. Benedict in Latin, that some of the terms that they use for the different members of a monastic community are exactly the same terms that were used for members of the Roman army. So the decanus, the dean, would have been, in the Roman army, someone who oversaw a decade, a ten, group of ten soldiers. And so you create, in Benedict, there is this hierarchy of monks, with the abbot at the top coming down, that is so clearly structured and is working from a programme that has worked in the past, which is this idea of military organisation. So it, it's both a way of controlling, but also a way of creating productive, useful spaces in these monastic communities. Places that do, that work, work for the community. Um, but it leads to some issues. <laughs> Did you know, I was, again, I was trying to find images of the Celtic tonsure, the, the Irish tonsure, and I typed in Irish tonsure on, on Google Images. And it's a thing. There are men out there, there's, there's about 100 photos of men in the pub shaving their heads into the original monastic tonsure. And they, they look crazy. But this is, this is what it looked like. So, well, this is one version of what it may have looked like. It seems to be a sort of hairband of hair, then a big gap, and then a mullet. That's, that's the way it seems to work. Um, <laughs> and you can grow the mullet as long as you like. It's, it's, it's good. 
Um, and these are, so this is showing you physically one of the big problems that was rife, particularly if we look at the church in England, that Irish monks and Roman monks did not look the same. They didn't dress the same. So the Benedictine monks, um, and I showed you an image there, you've got the black clothes, you've got the, the donut hairstyle. Um, and the Irish monks used to wear very, very heavy cloaks. They used to carry a walking stick, which actually becomes the crozier. Uh, and they used to carry a bell, and they would ring the bell and call people to them, and then read from their little pocketbooks. So you'd know an Irish monk anywhere, and actually you see carvings across Ireland where they've just reduced the Irish monk to a triangle with a face, a stick, and a bell. And that is like the cartoon version of an Irish monk. But this idea of haircuts, everybody laughs when they read Bede's account of the Synod of Whitby that haircuts become such a big issue. But actually what it's about, it's about non-conforming. It's about not conforming. Even today we have a sense of how we dress, how we wear our hair, how we look. People judge us and, and we're defined on those aspects of ourselves. And that was the same in these communities. So if you had the long mullet... You were a bit of a hippie Irish monk. You had a very different way of doing things. Whereas if you were dressed like that, you were coming from Rome. You were, you know, according with what the papacy wanted you to, to be doing. So this shows you the, the range of, of variety just in that one instant of what we could loosely term the Celtic church and what we could loosely term the Roman church. Um, and Benedictine monasticism was even more rigid than, than this in terms of the spaces that people inhabited. So there's been some amazingly exciting excavation happening up on the Isle of Lindisfarne. This gets me excited anyway. This is sort of you know, the most exciting thing in my life. But um, they've just been digging up the original monastery at Lindisfarne, the Irish monastery. And of course, all the buildings were in timber, not in wood. And so there's been, it's been really hard to find archaeological evidence for the buildings. But they think they found the original vellum pit that prepared the vellum to make the Lindisfarne Gospels. Oh, I know there's some people out here that, come on, that's goosebumpy, exciting stuff. For an Anglo-Saxonist, that's, that's as good as it gets. Um, but this idea of haphazard spaces that are functional, so you know, if you look at the plan of what we think is coming out of Lindisfarne, you had a building that was a church, you had a building where people slept, you had a building where people ate, and lots of workshops and craft areas where people made things and kept the abbey, the monastery working. But it wasn't structured, it wasn't coordinated. This is an amazing object. It's, it's the monastic plan of Sangal Monastery in Switzerland. It never became a building, but it survives. And it survives as the only architectural drawing for 700 years. From the fall of Rome to the 13th century, there are no other architectural drawings and, and this boggles my brain because people are building, they're just not recording them in this sort of documentary way. And the reason it is so fascinating is because it's not necessarily a practical blueprint of how to build a monastery, but it is a symbolic representation of what an ideal monastery, a Benedictine monastery, should look like. And it, it absolutely fascinates scholars. You can spend a lifetime looking at this plan. I had the privilege of being able to film with a scholar in Durham, and we had a, a full-scale version of it, and it's huge, I mean, it's a really big thing. And we were just pressing our faces up against this reproduction, just trying to read the inscriptions, trying to find out what this space was all about. But you can see at the very heart of it, sorry it's so faint, um, this is the cloister here, the monastic cloister. And I'll talk a bit more about cloisters and what they end up representing. But interestingly, when uh, theologians are writing about the role of the cloister in a monastery, they talk about it as a womb, that it is the womb of the monastery. And this is an interesting idea because, of course, these are male and female places. But the idea that this is where it's sort of the center point of the space. Um, and interestingly, you'd usually have a well in there as well. So you've got the idea of water, <coughs> say, this water in the central space. Coming out of there, of course, you need a church. So there is your church with an entrance for the monks and then an entrance from the, the main road for lay people who might be visiting the monastery. They can go into the main nave. And then you've got all these 
super functional buildings. You've got a hospital to take care of people. You've got kitchens. You've got uh, refectories, dormitories, places where people live. And then around these edges, this is as you're going out from that sort of spiritual space into the real world, you've got all the nitty-gritty, all the day-to-day. You've got your latrines. People need the loo. Um, And then you've got pens for animals. This is wonderful. You can actually see all the different animals that they wrote down. So they put pigs, ox, sheep, goats. And then um, gardens to grow the things that were needed within the monastery. And as I say, this this did not get built. Uh, This is what it could have looked like. Here's what you could have won. Um, it, It would have looked very regimented, very ordered. And again, I think what you have to be um, thinking about constantly with the early church is that it evolves out of the collapsed Roman Empire. The Roman Empire did something extraordinary. It managed to coordinate land from Hadrian's Wall down to Syria. And you don't get to do that without having a really good set of systems in place. And some of the set of systems they had were great hierarchical systems, great architecture, you know, carry your Vitruvius's book of architecture everywhere, pop up a forum, pop up a temple. Um, and they had roads, <laughs> and they did things in these straight, linear ways. So I was at Pompeii recently, and I was just struck by the idea that I could open up a grid plan and just know where everything is, because it's all connected by these straight roads. You can see that they're using that principle here in the monastery, and they are absolutely laying this out so it is functional and sensible. So that is the, uh, the Benedictine ideal, the sort of the goal. It doesn't come to pass, and what we end up with, we, we do have these, these wonderfully organised Benedictine monasteries on the continent, but they don't come to England until the 10th century. And in their place, we have extraordinary variety. And this is something I've written about in the book, but I love it. I love the idea that there are these centuries where different places, headed by different people, are creating these, these exciting, vibrant spaces. And you see it really strongly up in Northumbria, in the north of England, particularly 8th, 9th century. And with these places that I just adore, so Whithorn, a Celtic monastery, Hexham, the monastery of St. Wilfred, um, Lindisfarne, very closely associated with St. Cuthbert, Wermouth Jarrow, associated with my main man, the Venerable Bede. <laughs> I saw a, a, a message on Twitter today which said, I feel the need, the need for Bede. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I'm keeping that one. Um, And then Whitby here, which is associated with St Hilda. And each of these places were evolving out of a a situation where there was a choice with what sort of monastery you set up. You could subscribe to the Benedictine rule, and indeed they did at Wormuth Jarrow. Or you could come up with your own version, which is what Wilfred did at Hexham and Ripon. He sort of took it and went, that kind of works, but I'm going to cut those bits out because I want more power and money. Um, and then you could just do it a very different way and follow a more, uh, more aesthetic and, and wandering tradition, which is what we see in Lindisfarne and Whitmore. Um, and actually the archaeology from these places reflect the eclectic nature of these organisations. So these are finds coming out of Whitby. I think, I think you all probably can guess that I rather love Hilda of Whitby. I think she's just the most extraordinary woman. And it's wonderful in her life because they write about how for 30 years of her life she is a princess, a noblewoman. She lives in the court. And then for the other 30, she is abbess of this double monastery of men and women at Whitby. And she takes land and she gets wealth for the monastery and she creates this exciting hub of activity on the coast in Whitby. And it was a really exciting place, particularly for women to be able to go to, because here, women and men were writing. We know that because we found loads of these styluses. So they're writing, they're reading, they're thinking, they're pushing their minds. Um, But it's also quite luxurious. They found lots of combs. This is a lovely runic comb. So I like the idea of these sort of princesses of the noble houses of Northumbria who have suddenly become nuns all sitting combing their lovely hair. And they wore nice beads as well, lots of jewellery. So it's not that idea of um, deprivation and poverty that, that we tend to associate with monasticism now. It's, it's luxurious. It's a, a, a court. But it's a court that's doing something very different. So that's Hilda's 
um, monastery. Um, <laughs> Wilfred is an extraordinary character. I think I can give you an indication of the ego of Wilfred from saying that he, when he was proclaimed bishop, he felt that there were just not enough holy people in England to honour him. So he, he got 12 bishops over from Gaul and then made them, the 12 of them, lift him up on a chair, a throne, so that he was the 13th. Now let's think of the symbolism here. The 12 apostles, who's Wilfred? I think he's giving himself the top role here in this, position, in this job. Uh, he had a really strong sense of his power and his prestige. And I love the fact that one of the things that survives associated with him is his stone throne. Like, they can't move it. It's still there after 1,400 years. Wilfred's throne is still there. I've sat in it. What a moment that was. But anyway, um, yeah, so he is, is creating powerhouses at Hexham and, and Ripon that are... Uh, they're actually quite militarily threatening because they're full of noblemen, full of potentially wealthy people who are also trained as warriors. And he is pushing against the power and authority of the secular rulers in this area, so much so that the king of Northumbria is so threatened by him that he keeps sending him over to Rome. And he goes to the Pope, complains, and then the Pope sends him back again. And this happens a few times. So Wilfred was, yeah, I like to think of him as sort of Alan Sugar of his time. Um, and then you've got my favourite uh, place, I think the place I probably would have been most at home, which is where with Jarrow. This is I, I love thinking of it as this sort of freaky oasis in the north of England because it would have looked so odd. For a start, it was built of stone. Everybody else in the landscape is living in timber buildings. And there's this stone structure. They didn't even have stone masons in England. They had to import them because nobody knew how to work stone. Then there is the wonderful discovery that this might have been painted pink. <laughs> I... We don't know for sure, but there's been fragments of plaster found. And on the continent, a lot of these plastered monastic buildings were painted pink. So the idea of a great pink stone building, it just enchants me. And then it's glazed. Again, I've said this before, but we take for granted glass windows. They don't properly come in until the last few hundred years because glass itself wasn't able to be made completely translucent for many, many, many centuries. It was quite dull. So you wouldn't necessarily get what we get now, which is that you can have light coming in, but you keep the elements out. And yet, at Bede's Monastery at Hexham, uh, sorry, when with Jarrow, they had glass windows. It's the first, oldest surviving stained glass window anywhere is a little fragment from, from Jarrow. It's there, in fact. You see, I came prepared. Um, that is it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So this idea of glass, stone, pink, it's, it's new, it's exciting. And then they're emulating, think this is the original inscription stone that was put in to commemorate the founding of this monastery. And what we have to remember is this is happening about 620 AD. 
Augustine only arrives in, Kant, in, the, in the Isle of Thanet in 597. Right up until that point, for centuries, England has been pagan Germanic culture, a warrior culture. And Benedict Biscop, the abbot of this monastery, he's the first generation of converts. He goes to Rome, he gets enchanted by what he sees. And he comes back and he has to explain to a population who have no idea what he's going on about, what he's going to do at this place. So it's radical in its appearance, it's radical in its ideology, its ideas, what it's trying to show to people. And I think it must have been quite alluring. I think if I'd been a young bead, and I'm sort of shivering by a fire in a timber hut, and I can see a bunch of people who look like they're staying in the Hilton just up the road, I'd, I'd probably want to get in there. Um, and... And what comes out of this place is extraordinary. Again, we're thinking first-generation converts. This object here, I have dedicated much of my life to. It is the Codex Amiatinus. It's an extraordinarily massive manuscript that takes two people to carry and um, weighs the same as a great day. The old cliche about the Codex Amiatinus. Um, it is the oldest surviving single pandect copy of the Vulgate Bible anywhere. So when you go to the bookshop and buy a copy of the Vulgate Bible, it's copied from this manuscript. And for centuries, well, right up until 100 years ago, it's been in Italy in a library, and it was assumed that this was an Italian product, because only Italians could have made the oldest surviving Vulgate Bible, surely. And then some clever detective work um, meant that it, the, the colophon had been um, erased, and they'd written the name Peter the Langobards over the top, but when they found the original colophon, it actually said Chaelfrith of Northumbria. And this idea that they made this object in New just outside Newcastle, it just is extraordinary. And what's extraordinary is that what well, they didn't make one, they made three. And to make one of these took the calf of about a, a, took the skins of about a thousand calves. So think of the technology that is being involved in this. They're having to get all these animal skins. They're having to prepare the vellum. They're having to get hold of ink from various locations, learn how to prepare the ink, learn how to decorate it, and then get hold of all the books to meticulously, carefully copy out. The Bible wasn't distributed as a book at this point, it was bits of the Bible would be distributed. So you'd have a collection of the first few books, or you'd have the New Testament. But the idea of putting it all in one place, this is the, it's almost like the invention of the computer. This was radical to stick it all in one volume so that scholars and thinkers could move between the various books of the Bible. It was a complete innovation and an extraordinary achievement. And it's being made by first generation Christians in the north of England. Go. Um, so this is the sort of stuff that monasticism could expand into. And I mean, I have described Bede's monastery at Jarrow, Wormouth Jarrow, as the Silicon Valley of its time, because it was where all the ideas were coming out of it. was generating this new technology and generating these new ideas. And the people working there were the absolute intellectual elite of their time. And the idea that you're pulling people together and producing manuscripts... Now we sort of look at manuscripts as very quaint, pretty, oldie-worldy things, and we get, I'm just as guilty as it, of it as everyone else, but I get all giddy when I'm turning the pages of vellum, looking at the wonderful artworks. It's a, a very prized, precious bit of kit that you're looking at when you're looking at a manuscript. It's expensive to make, it's time-consuming to make, it's owned by an elite, tiny percentage of people would have access to manuscripts. And they need to be made somewhere, and they're being made in monasteries. And for a thousand odd years, it is the preserve of monasteries to keep information and to distribute it through monasteries. There's a wonderful moment in Game of Thrones, where, which I was watching, where the librarian says, you know, we're here to preserve the, the knowledge of ages. And that is what these monasteries are doing. They're preserving the knowledge of ages. They're not just recording sacred texts. They're recording law codes. They're recording grants of land, financial exchanges, marriages, relationships. They're documenting the passage of life. And without them, where's that going to go? So some of the variety of early monasticism there. Yeah, you might know this one. <laughs> 
familiar to anybody? <laughs> it's over there. <laughs> Just to give you a clue, it's over there. Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about Gloucester, uh, because what we see in this evolution of monastic life is an increasing move away from variety, from diversity in monasteries, to a streamlining. The really big moment, I don't know if any of you came to see me talk at Gloucester Cathedral, I gave a talk about Benedictine monasticism there. The big moment was the Benedictine reform of the 10th century, spearheaded by King Edgar, that madman who loved chasing nuns into sewers. He is such a character, and Edgar. Um, and part of his program of reform, which was very much a politically motivated act, was to impose Benedictine monasticism across the country. So wonderfully rich old monasteries like the one at Glastonbury, ripped down, torn down, replaced with a Benedictine monastery. He could then create a hierarchy of abbots, bishops, which were all loyal to him. And it is a, it's a huge takeover, the Benedictine reform. We sort of think about it as some theological debate. It was a taking over of the land and a taking over of the wealth and a taking over of the power, all coordinated around this court of the king. And, um, and so after that moment, after the, this, the, the events of the Benedictine reform, monasticism in England changes. And we get these large-scale abbeys. Um, St. Peter's in Gloucester is one of them, Benedictine. And they become very much um, powerhouses that serve a double function of being spiritual hubs, where people are coming together as monks to pray, but also serving a very worldly function. So up at the cathedral, we know there's a king buried there. Edward II, we won't talk about him. Um, we all know about the poker. But um, he's there, and then we have other royal event, uh, events and things that are taking place. So when Parliament meets, when, when people need to congregate for, for judgment, for justice, it tends to be in and around the Abbey. They're sort of serving this worldly function as well. And the Abbey became incredibly wealthy. And, and again, it gets invested in, of course, by later rulers. So what you see when you stand inside the cathedral up at this end, of course, a lot of it is down to a king, King Edward III. The royal patronage of, of paying for that, what actually is an explosion in English perpendicular Gothic, the most extraordinary development in, in Gothic architecture here that you can see in one building. You're so lucky, honestly. People at Gloucester, you don't know how lucky you are with this building. Um, but an extraordinary expression of power and the relationship between church and state. And this spills out into the cloisters, of course. So this was an extraordinary moment when I filmed in the, in the Gloucester cloisters. It is a breathtaking space. And I remember um, when I took my crew into this space, they were sort of saying, oh my gosh, you know, is this a palace? I'm like, no, it's not a palace. These are monastic cloisters. And who would have seen it? Is it for everybody? No, it's for about 40 months. And the idea of exclusivity, the idea that this was, oh, just, just palatial, but just for the community, I think this expresses the sort of high point of where monasticism got to. And, um, and I, for me, it's summed up at places like Revo, at fountains. When you walk around these huge ruins and you see the scale of the buildings, there is a problem at the heart of monasticism as we're going into the 14th, 15th century, which is that they are becoming too wealthy, too powerful. They are actually sucking up the resources of their communities. And it is controversial and difficult because if we look at, I've got Revo, I was going to talk about Revo in a bit, but if we look at Revo, for example, Revo own everything in that area of Yorkshire. And they have all of the resources for them, all of the sheep. So even if there's, there's accounts in the, in the documentation from the monastery where a local landowner has happened to have some of the monastic sheep wander onto his land, and he's punished by the monastery, but they've got 20,000 sheep, and he's got four. And this idea of the injustice of that, I think, was really starting to rear its head. But it's also 
also the a core Christian issue that we see played out by theologians like Thomas Aquinas, where they're trying to understand how a church that is supposed to be emulating the example of Christ through humility, through poverty, how can they be sat in churches that are dripping with gold, sat on mounds of wealth from the wool trade and from the different um, things that they're producing? It, it was definitely going to rear its head. And one of the issues I think we see with the dissolution of the monastery is we like to think of Henry VIII sort of wandering into monasteries, smacking monks around their heads and just as a bloodbath, and then he's running off with all the money under his arms. It wasn't like that. In many ways, the final dissolution of the monasteries that starts to happen in the 15, 1530s was an inevitable aspect of the decline of a system that overreached and became, it, it couldn't be sustained anymore, it was unsustainable. But I, before I kind of talk a bit about that, I just want to recap on some of the amazing stuff that monasteries did do in this millennium of monasteries. So I've talked about manuscript production. I can't overemphasize how important the role of monastic scribes were. And the first time I set foot in the scriptorium over here, I was giddy with excitement. The idea that there is still a preserved monastic scriptorium where you can sit in the booths where the monks sat. You can see the graffiti that they've scratched on the wall as they're bored writing out various manuscripts. That is such a magical place over there. Um, and that, for me, is, is, the, is the nuts and bolts day-to-day -day role of the, the scriptorium, that they are preserving documents, that they are um, distributing knowledge, sharing ideas, and, and think that without monasteries, there would be none of that in the West. Um, they're playing a role, as I say, in supporting the state. Without monastic scribes, you can't really govern correctly because you need monks to write down what's happening. We have chronicles that survive. Without monks, we wouldn't have the chronicles, the histories that survive, but kings and queens wouldn't be able to, to govern their, their land. So there's a close relationship. You can see that beautifully in this. I love these two images. These are both from Winchester. Um, and that's Edgar and that's Knut. And what you can see here, underneath the altar, is actually a sequence of monks that are propping up the monarch. I think that's really a powerful image, the idea they're actually supporting the monarchy, physically. Um, this is just Dunstan. He's, yeah, he's cool. He's part of this Benedictine reform, and he was a teacher. And the reason I've put this up is because I want to be thinking about the idea of education within these monastic communities. Yes, they're making, they're documenting, they're writing, but they're teaching. They're bringing people in, boys and girls from young ages, teaching them Latin, teaching them to read, teaching them the skills. Um, and they become schools. And so the, it's, it's interesting that the book that survives related to Dunstan is a class book, it's a textbook. It's teaching them Latin. So they are educational hubs. Um, and they are hubs of science, travel, technology. This is a map that was made by the gentleman I spoke about last year, Matthew Paris, based at St. Albans. Um, an extraordinary survival from the 13th century showing a map of the British Isles. Okay, it's a little bit wonky, but he's done pretty well. I think we can all see that's supposed to be Scotland. There's Wales, it sort of works. Um, and monastic communities were linked together. There was an extraordinary sense in which this was an international community. You could travel from the north of Scotland. Every day you could stay at a different monastic community and you would be put up, you would be fed, and you would be prepared for your next day of travel onto the next monastic community. And wherever you went, you would encounter similar order of the day, similar environment. So they were travelling vast distances. They were going across the Western world and they were documenting it as they go. Medicine. What is this strange building? This is the tower that survives at St. Bart's in London. It's the only bit of the original St. Bart's Abbey to survive. This is the medieval tower here. And I've used St. Bart's as an example because it is one of the first hospitals and in fact, it's the oldest continually used hospital 
in the country. Um, but at St. Bart's, you saw a community, in that case of mendicant friars, but they were mendicant friars, but they were trying to help people with their health and well-being. And they would provide things like midwifery, so babies could be born in safe environments and not die. They would provide basic health care. They would provide beds and food for people who were sick. And the location where they were, they, could, they, they didn't have many beds. At the most, they probably had about 100 beds. But this was where medicine was starting to evolve. And monks would be drawn into this world because they were fascinated by science. They were fascinated by the human body, by um, herbs and medicines. So we mustn't forget that, that monks have this important role to play in providing this sort of health care as well as education. This is just for my own amusement. You don't, I have nothing particularly to say about it. It's just funny. Um, this is some monastic medicine. Yeah, They got, they got there in the end. Um, I literally don't have anything to say about it. <laughs> it just made me laugh. Uh, Revo, so I put Revo up now because um, I wanted to think a little bit about the idea that monasteries also, as well as education, healthcare, this does sound a bit like a Monty Python sketch of what did the monks ever do for us, but alongside those things, of course, trade and industry. And I talked a bit about the wool trade and the idea that there's tens of thousands of sheep being shorn and they're wool prepared, um, but they are. They're trading in all sorts of different things. So when you go to a monastic site, you will see crafts shops to make ivory, to make um, cloth, to make all sorts of different objects. And they're selling them. And they're often on rivers, which means it's easy to get products in and out. So we have to think of them again as these sorts of industrial hubs and these, these centers of trade and industry. And we see that particularly with <laughs> beer. They become the kings of beer. So I was in Bruges, and um, there is a thing you can do in Bruges, which is to do the Abbey Beer Tour, where you try the beer from all of the abbeys in Bruges. It's deadly, not really not a good idea. But this, this is what we were doing last night, testing the ale. But this, <laughs> I think that's what I was doing. I'm not quite sure. Um, but this idea that they are brewers, that they are um, controlling that sort of, of, they have a monopoly on that industry. So they are, they're brewing, and again, I think this is partly the essence of their decline. We think of the fat friar from Chaucer's um, Canterbury Tales, and this idea that actually they become quite lazy, ineffectual, they stop doing all the really useful stuff that they're doing, and they do start living in palatial spaces. And the Benedictine rule says, you know, you, you can't eat too much. It's very tight on the amount of food that, can, that a monk can eat. But, and it does say, you know, you can't eat, eat meat within a monastic refectory. So what they ended up doing was building dining halls right next door where they were allowed to eat meat. And so they would just simply go to the next building and gorge themselves on huge quantities of food. And one of the things I found so interesting looking at um, 14th century bones from London was if you look at an average person's skeleton, they're often, they've got rickets, they've got certain health issues because they're not getting enough food, they're not getting, certainly not getting enough veg, fruits and vegetables. They, we looked at um, what I managed to get the archaeologist to admit was a fat monk. She didn't want to say it, but I made her say it. It was a fat monk. And um, his skeleton showed this, um, this thing that, where it's almost like a candle wax that's dripped down the bones of the spine. And what it does, it actually fuses the spine together, but it comes from excess fat deposited over many, many years. So the fact that this skeleton showed that uh, is an, idea, an indication of the, the amount of fat and um, excess nutrition that these monastic monasteries were getting. And it does overexpand, it does get too big. At, at the highest point in the 14th century, in Oxford, there are 10,000 inhabitants and there's like 40 monastic communities. So who are they serving? What are they doing with themselves? Um, 
Gloucester as well has got a huge amount. I've got a map here just to show you how many different communities they were. And they're all branching off in different ways. You have your Benedictines, you have your sort of original monasteries, but you have uh, the new mendicant friars. So mendicant um, monasticism emerges in the 12th century. We think of St. Francis of Assisi would be the sort of the, the... and the Franciscans and the Dominicans being mendicants. But they respond to this rise of urban life. As more people live in cities, they realise that they have to tend to the needs of citizens in cities. So they're not tied to place. They can walk around, they can meet people, help them, help the sick. Um, But different branches all over a city. So they're almost, it's almost super saturating, these communities. There's too too many months, not enough uh, they're not producing enough, not helping enough. Um, and so when we actually get to 1530 and we ask, what did Henry do? A lot of the smaller communities were, were not sustainable by this point anyway. Places like Revo, that at a high point had about 200 monks, were down to about five. They were already hemorrhaging because there were just too many communities. So he closed all the small ones and he didn't kill them. He gave them pensions, he moved them sideways into parish churches, and actually very few people met their death as a result of the dissolution of the monasteries. Um, But it was to have a lasting scar on the landscape, particularly in terms of the architecture. And again, one of the things I was always struck about was I used to think of the dissolution as this sort of smashing up of everything. When you see the sculptures without their heads, without their arms, and you just think of these knights being sent into these communities and being told to smash everything up. I used to think of it as quite a chaotic thing. It was not. It was systematic and it was organised. Um, if you go to Ely Cathedral and you look in the Lady Chapel, you can see someone's had the boring job. Someone's just said, can you just go around and take all the faces off? And someone's just gone around and very meticulously taken all the faces off. And then when they deconstruct the buildings, they're not ripping them down. They're taking them down stone by stone and reusing the stone. Um, And so here at Walsingham, you've got a very iconic, tragic-looking arch from the original monastic building. But behind here, you can see Walsingham House, which is the stately home that was built with the stone from the monastery. And actually, all you have is a relocation of power from the hands of a a rich abbot and a rich monastic community to the hands of a rich lord or a rich earl or a rich landowner. And all the systems of land ownership and land governance continue, but they're in different hands. So it's cataclysmic, it's huge, but it's it's more a sort of a a development and and, and an emergence into a new world that sadly was, was coming probably. And we still have a few of our monastic buildings, so we have Gloucester, of course, and we have Durham, and our great cathedrals form the bedrock of, of, have grown out of these monasteries. They're they're no longer monastic communities, but they're still part of, they're documents of our heritage, and they're documents of this important time in history, this millennium of monasteries. I wound it up quite well. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. Floating mics from the, the Civic Trust volunteers. So thank you. Yes, lady in the front. Rush, rush. <laughs> it's not you. Microphone is beetling towards her. Um, this sounds really trivial, but um, taking the tonsure idea was an identification badge. Why a tonsure? Why were they? Why did they have to hair? Mm, it's not trivial at all. It's hugely important and beat spend most of his book talking about it, so you're in good company. Um, the tonsure goes back, it, it, the reason that there are two types of tonsure, it comes down to the origins of the church in Ireland, and it goes back to around the 4th century, that when the first bit, if you think about the location of Ireland, where it is, it's broken off from the continent by the rest of the British Isles. So, the route that a lot of ideas actually came to Ireland from was from northern Africa around the Spanish coast and up, rather than across mainland Europe uh, from, from Rome that way. 
And as a result, a lot of what comes out in the early years of Celtic monasticism have got this flavour of, of the Desert Fathers of Africa, of Spain, of that area. And the tonsia comes from a particular writer who, who is writing about the 6th century, Peter... I'll remember the second name, but it's a different type of tonsure that he suggests. And because they're cut off from Rome for a good couple of hundred years while Anglo-Saxon England is being all Beowulf, um, <laughs> they end up staying with this older way of doing things. Whereas the Benedictines, when he writes his rule in the 6th century, he says we are going to have a thing called a Petrine tonsure. And it's called Petrine with the donuts because it was thought that that was how St. Peter himself had his hair. Now, who thought that? Don't know. But it's called the Petrine tonsure after him. So, without meaning to, the Irish monks have not got the memo that everybody's now wearing their hair differently. And so they continue to practice this different form of tonsure. And, and it becomes a, a point of issue between the two of them. Does that clear enough? And, and the evidence for Peter, what was evidence for Peter? Evidence? What, what was it? Well, no evidence no. at all. You don't need evidence. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody wrote it yeah. at some point, and then other people said, we read it there, so it must be. Yeah. There is no evidence. <laughs> Thank you for the question. Who else has got a question? We've got time for one last one. Oh, there's a hand right at the back. the back. My goodness, literally the back row. Hello over there. considerable amount of monasteries and priories in Gloucester itself. And at the time of the dissolution, despite all the interesting things you're saying about them having too much power, were they still providing an important um, level of welfare for the poor people? And what effect did the abolition of those have on the poor and the starving? And bringing it up to date, I suppose, what lessons does the present government have to learn about the use of Henry VIII powers? Oh! Amazing questions! Amazing questions! Oh my goodness! I want to answer all of them, but I will be here for a week. You have asked such good questions. So, okay. What, I'm going to break them down. So one of them was about um, what happened in the, what, what happened to the provision in terms of welfare, in terms of education, in terms of healthcare, that those monasteries were providing as the dissolution happened. And, um, and there is an obvious uh, decline. There, it, it is quite shocking. And that is one of the things that really comes about immediately after 1530, that people get very upset about it, because suddenly there is not care for the poor. There is not uh, food being provided for people in the locations that they were used to going to to receive a piece of bread or some charity. And certainly in terms of healthcare, there was a huge decline. So there is this immediate rupture, but it only lasts for a short period because what was also happening simultaneously as the monasteries were declining was that other secular versions of all the services monasteries were offering were starting to arise. So right back in the 13th century, we see secular printing presses, um, uh, sorry, secular scriptoriums, and of course the development of printing presses is huge, but the idea that it didn't need to just be monks that were writing everything down. Lay people could do it. We also see the emergence of secular healthcare, secular um, hospitals, and universities, which were offering education that was not necessarily confined to a monastic community. So before we see the drama of the dissolution, all those things are starting to evolve and change. Um, so in a way, again, that's why it doesn't seem quite so dramatic. Things do carry on. But you're absolutely right. There is an immediate decline in the years after, and you do see it. Um, in terms of what the present government can learn... Keep, keep that for two sessions. <laughs> I think, I think um, you know, I'm a medievalist, and I try very hard not to see the medieval period through rose-tinted spectacles. 
But there, is, there are times where I sort of look at really well-functioning communities like, like Revo at its height, and you think they were doing something right. They kind of knew what they were doing. I think Tony said it last night. Tony Robinson said, uh, I, I often get asked, would you be born at any other time? Would you go back to any other period in history? I wouldn't, because we are the product of so much change and development. And although our modern time is imperfect, there is so much more in terms of rights, access to, to, help, to the things that we need to stay alive, that I think makes it a nice time to be alive. So I'm, I'm going I'm to completely dodge the government question. <laughs> but thank you. Awesome questions. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.